everyone, and welcome to the podcast, It Should Go Without Saying. I'm your host, Andrew Lewis, and I'm in the Punter studio in the Punter mansion. Out on the road is our roving reporter and regular contributor, Cameron McDonald. How are you doing, Cam? I'm in the Cammobile. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good, mate. How are you? Not too bad. Today, we are talking about football, AFL, Australian rules football, the best sport in the world. We tried this a couple of weeks ago, but I... Uh, I forgot to take the cap off uh, the the uh, cover off the microphone, so it didn't quite work. So we're giving another crack two weeks later in grand final week. It's a shame, isn't it? Because all of our predictions for the finals were absolutely correct, including Brownlow medalist and the Brownlow medal trifecta, and um, we could have made all of our listeners a, a truckload of money. But uh, regrettably, it just couldn't go to air. It it, it couldn't. I'm just going to have to fall asleep tonight on a large pile of money. Um, in in all seriousness, uh, anyone who knows me knows that I normally approach semi-final week as free money week because everybody talks themselves into the elimination final winners to beat the qualifying final losers. I was going to uh, the very nice, respectable establishment, the Trans Australia Bank, on the Thursday before the set first semi-final between Geelong and West Coast, and I looked up the odds beforehand, and I thought, no, this looks good. And then while I was driving from Maryborough to Ballarat, where I was stopping off to go to the tab, uh, the Willie Rioli news broke, and Geelong came in from about $2.05 to about $1.85. So I didn't have any money on them, and which was fine, because it would have been a multi into Brisbane, and uh, they didn't get up. So all's well that ends well. Yeah, we're going to have to revisit some of these statistics because you've been talking about that loser of the qualifying final one for some time and I mean first of all it's a a solid statistic but you I wouldn't expect in the majority of cases you would come up against the premier of the previous year in your semi-final having said that Geelong got the job done but it just feels like this pre-finals buys thrown some chaos into some age-old statistics We've done four years now, and I think it's 50-50. I think both years, one team from the qualifying final has won and one team from the elimination final has won. So it is now a coin flip over the yeah. last four years. I don't, I don't know if that's enough of a, a body of data, uh, only eight games and four years, but it feels like there's a bit of a trend developing. And Brisbane were unlucky, but uh, they weren't unlucky in the traditional sense. They were unlucky. They ran into GWS, but we'll get into that in a minute. You did mention our Brownlow predictions. What did you make of Monday night? Uh, well, I thought 33 was a lot of votes, which I've, I've heard said quite a bit since. You know, I was looking forward to, even if it was uh, a toss of the coin between you know, the five or six absolute superstars of the league, I, I was expecting it to go right to the wire. A lot of people were predicting that Dangerfield might finish with three threes and 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 grab it right at the death. And uh, I think he did finish with three threes, but uh, Fife was still six votes clear. So it was an extraordinary margin. But if anything, perhaps we could have looked at the count and thought, you know, who is the who is the golden child? Who seems to get votes uh, no matter what's going on? And it, it is that man with the beautiful locks from Frio. Look, I can only, I mean, I didn't see a lot of Freo this year, but I certainly attended and watched with great interest the St Kilda Freo game uh, in round 21. And 
he got the three votes that day and he deserved every little bit of them. It was insane uh, how good he was in the first half, particularly of that game compared to everyone else on the field. But, yeah, I, threw, I felt compelled to throw a tweet out, I think, that very afternoon because I watched it all and uh, I was texting you that afternoon about how good he had been. And I, I don't often feel compelled to tweet, though I did a little bit through the ashes. But, um, but yeah, it was an extraordinary performance. And I, I think I tweeted something about how we're obsessed with finding the next best player. You know, and, and I think the one that's really had me scratching my head this year is that they, they keep saying Tim English is the next Brody Grundy. And I'm like, hang on a minute. The current Brody Grundy has is asking for a seven-year deal. So we don't okay. need to find the next one. And we don't need to find the next best player in the AFL because we should just relax and enjoy the reign of Nat Fife, who, I don't know, he, he plays football exactly the way I like to watch it. You know, he's tough as anything. He flies for his marks and he catches everything. If he could kick the football like Dusty could, there'd be no argument. But, he, yeah, he he's my kind of footballer. He he is more of a natural leader though than than Martin. I mean, he has a he has an edge to his game, which I don't know. It sort of sometimes it looks like it borders on the malicious, but I think it's just about sort of being the top dog and enforcing his will on the opposition. And I don't know if anyone who's at his level in terms of the ball winning and the hop on my back sort of mode, the Dangerfields, the Cripses, and uh, the Dusties of this world have that edge to the game that, uh, that Fife does. Having said that, you know, you make, you make a lot of sense about, can we just enjoy Brody? He was the guy I wanted to win because I think it would have been a paradigm changing Brownlow. I think he, you know, I think there's an argument that he was the best player and the most influential player in the competition this year. But, uh, whoever say Tim English is the next Brody Grundy, is there an email for those people so I can send that email address to all the St Kilda supporters who will correct them and say it's Rowan Marshall? Uh, I mean, I, I love Rowan Marshall, but I, I, I'm more of the school of thought that we should let Rowan Marshall be the first Rowan Marshall and enjoy uh, a lot more years of, of that quality football from Brody Grundy. And as a Collingwood supporter, I'm wrapped about that. He's, yeah... He's an unbelievable footballer, and I actually I, I get the sense that the umpires are copping on. He he did he did poll three votes um, in a losing side. Once that was twice. against GWS, wasn't it? That they lost yeah. the game by about forty five points, and he had a similar sort of influence on that game as he did on the weekend. Yeah, they double teamed him in that in that game, and I wouldn't have given him three votes necessarily in that game. But the point is that the umpires are starting to get it, so. It's been a, would have been a long time. It would have been a long time since a ruckman has polled twenty-three votes in a Brownlow. And to be perfectly fair, if my memory serves me correctly, when uh, guys like Jim Stones and Scott Wine were winning Brownlows at the, at the beginning of the nineties, they weren't polling twenty-three votes. They were polling probably just below that. So it's an astonishing performance. I think he he probably suffers a little bit because you know. A season like Fife's or Dangerfields probably would have polled mid to low 20s 25 years ago, but now they, they their excellence doesn't seem to be missed anymore by the umpires. No, and and Jared Whaley made an interesting point following the Brownlow, which is also that the game is set up to allow the superstars to be that much more of a cut above than they ever have been. 
I don't know whether you subscribe to that theory, but every coach now bangs on about team defence and and role players and play your role and, and don't go above and beyond too often. Just, you know, play the percentages. And, and that allows for guys like, you know, Dustin Martin to go forward and kick six. That's the entire way Richmond are sensing they can win a game. That's, you know, Fife's the same. It's that the Superman cape type of stuff. That's what coaches are aiming at. I certainly think the team defence thing makes a season like Buddy's in 2008 uh, impossible at the moment until someone figures out how one person we need we need to figure out a way a team a team can consistently kick 17 goals a game before we can figure out a way for a full forward to kick 90 goals in a home and away season so yeah the for guys a full that sort of seem most capable i mean there are a couple of teams that, that don't mind playing that one out full forward i think if the goey can get a crack at it uh, i think if martin sort of flicked from playing uh, 70-30 midfield to 70-30 forward, that, that, that these are the guys that might be capable of kicking a huge score um, because they, they can actually, the coaches can figure out ways to get them one out in the goal square. And that just, it's, it's very difficult to imagine that a bloke who's 6-5 is going to be allowed to do that. Having said that, I, I don't, I seem to think that, I seem to feel this year that uh, when when forwards kicked five or six goals they got votes I know Josh Bruce got votes in the North Melbourne game which is a game which St Kilda weren't very good in but Bruce kicked six goals and took a whole bunch of marks and he got two Brownlow votes and the three Brownlow votes went to the North Melbourne bloke who kicked five or six so I sort of felt like during the during the course of the count someone would kick five or six goals to Goey in round two against Richmond I think he got five he got the three Brownlow votes so um, yep. maybe maybe there is a bit more to that but also I think historically we we lament the fact that it's just a midfielders medal or some do the total list of key forwards who won a Brownlow b- before this sort of new way of Brownlows being only for midfielders came through was Bernie Quinlan, Kelvin Templeton and Tony Lockett and that's it and they won it in the space of 10 years yeah I mean Ruckman have sort of fallen by the wayside but yeah it's uh, yeah you, you might be right does Josh Bruce play for St Kilda next year? Um, much to my mother's chagrin, almost certainly not. I think that's a done deal. And I think today's news that Paddy Wright has nominated St Kilda, I think that's a one-in-one-out type situation. Um, They're going to be very I, busy. I, I'm not happy to see him go, but I don't... I think he's the sort of guy who, if you barrack for the team that he plays for, you can always be very, very happy with his effort. But I don't necessarily think uh, he's capable of being an elite forward. Rowan Marshall might be capable of that. And then you've got Paddy Ryder um, has probably got a couple of years of, of good ruck craft left in him solo because he was, he was playing with Scott Lysett for a lot of this year. And I don't think that made him too happy. And as good as Marshall was in the ruck, you know, I've heard plenty of St Kilda people say that they think his future is actually as a key forward. So it might be robbing Peter to pay Paul, but Bruce would have gone okay as second fiddle, potentially. Yeah, I also think they're trying to make room for Max King. I think they feel like next season he's going to come in and hit the ground running. He was exciting some people at Sandy before he hurt his ankle. So, And I think they're also want to, if, you know, the unlikely becomes likely. I think they also want to leave a path open, in, you know, if Paddy McCartan can get his head right to get back into the How team. And I think if you, 
if you had Bruce and you had Ryder and you had King and you had Membry, you had Josh Battle who might go back there, um, then there sort of would be no, you know, Paddy McCartan would probably be look at it and think, geez, even if I get my head right, I'm going to be running around for Sandy for a while. So, you know, I think they feel like the Bulldogs will give fair value, which remains to be seen. It's going to be a busy trade week. It is. Um, Josh Jenkins announced today that he's looking for a new club and he's, you know, putting the sign around, we'll play for food. Happy to take a pay cut to leave Adelaide where he's got two years left on a contract. So, um, Is Adelaide going to be out of field a team? I mean, I think they will, but I think, I think the Crows list profile looks just as about as bad in terms of the cliff as we've seen in some time for a team that, uh, yeah, I think I think they look a little bit like uh, St Kilda 2011-2012 and probably the last, you know, lose a grand final, competitive but not good enough two years after that, next year sort of maybe looms as 2013 and they've got to make the moves and start rebuilding. And that's probably why they're happy to put their hand up and say, yeah, Gold Coast can have a priority pick because they think it's probably going to end up back with them and, one, and Brad Crouch is going to end up at the Gold Coast. So... Yeah, I mean, he's one. I mean, he's. I don't think. I don't think you can let Brad Crouch go, even if that's where you're up to. Brad Crouch, Rory Laird, you know, some of the names thrown around. Alex Keith. These are guys in the perfect age profile to actually be a part of the next wave at Adelaide. Eddie Betts, you understand, um, and maybe these guys don't leave. But there's, you know, with all this. I mean, it was a dreadful end to the season for Adelaide, and uh, a fifth coach. Uh, hit the scrap heap, but you know, and they never recovered from that preseason trip. But yeah, fair income. If they lose some of the guys that are in the absolute prime of of their lives, if you get pick two back for Brad Crouch, great. But they're going to gut that football club um, to try and get anything happening again. Wouldn't you rather take someone like Jack Lacocious than pick two? Considering, or would you would you take pick two thinking at, at a later date you're going to get Lacocious back to South Australia anyway? It's a good question because uh, he was so highly touted, but he, he didn't really produce this year. I know he's, he's not the type to, you know, to excel straight away in the big leagues, being being taller. Um, but all the all the talk was around how he could get up to the wings and this, you know, the beautiful kicking that he that he had. He didn't have a great year. I still think he's going to be a great player. But if I had pick one and two more to the point as Gold Coast, I would want to keep those those uh, gun uh, players that they're all touting to go number one and two, is it Anderson and, and Raul? Mm. I'd, be, I'd be trying to keep them together because, you know, two really good mates who would be happy to stick it together up in the sunshine and, and, uh, and rebuild that footy club, I would, I'd prefer to keep them together than to be trading one of those picks away. Mm. Raul was uh, best on ground the VFL under-18s grand final on Saturday, so... I've I've heard a bit of discussion about the Gold Coast and how they're not adopting uh, a similar recruiting strategy to Brisbane, who had similar problems with uh, keeping players up there, and then they just decided to stop drafting players from Melbourne. And if they're going to draft Victorians, draft them from the country because there wasn't that go-home factor because even if they're in Melbourne, they're not home. I think they drafted McCluggage and Berry together, and they're great mates. So they've sort of thought about things a little differently and I'm not sure if uh, 
Gold Coast have reached that situation, but it's it's pretty bad. And and you know, a team that was introduced into the competition after them certainly with a much more friendly set of concessions as they entered the competition and for longer, but they're now in the grand final. So rubbing salt into an already pretty open wound, I would think. Correct. Yeah, there's something to be said for that. I think a lot of clubs have also avoided Western Australian players for similar reasons, and clubs might have to look at that this year because WA's gone and won the title, and there's a lot of draftable players from over there. So we can't let those two... uh, Western Australian clubs uh, just uh, feast on all of that talent. Yes, and I mean, it's not just talent that uh, they draft or they can keep or a, a Jack Darling situation where it's just like, well, I, I'm I'm not staying if you draft me and you're not a WA club, but also you know, the Tim Kelly situation. I mean, it's hard to envisage someone looking more miserable at the Brandlow Medal than <laughs> Tim Kelly looked on Monday. He he was. He looked pretty unhappy, and uh, and very uh, maybe as a reaction to Chris Scott's comments earlier in the day that the Geelong coach cannot see a circumstance under which Geelong would be satisfied in a trade for Tim Kelly. I mean, does Chris Scott realizes that Tim Kelly's out of contract, and he can just step away, and Geelong won't won't get anything in the end. I've got some pretty strong thoughts on Chris Scott actually that have just sort of. That, you know, I've been simmering on them for quite a while, but I think his performance uh, in the lead-up to this final series, I spoke about it a little bit on, on the podcast that um, will never go to air. Um, but I I can't really stand him anymore. Um, <laughs> I'm sure Geelong people like how fiercely loyal he was, and, and it's, it's an extension of who he was as a player, but, ah, uh, man, there's just some pro-cat agenda stuff that is just ridiculous. And if he could only compare himself talking about Paddy Dangerfield coming home and, you know, I don't think Adelaide will want to stand in the way of that and what a class act, you know, Paddy Dangerfield was in his last year at Adelaide and rah, 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 rah. Well, just do Tim Kelly a favour because you've bought at bargain basement price and you're going to sell for something great. They're going to have to come up with something great or potentially you can deal with Frio as well who should have even better picks in place, especially once Brad Hill gets down to St Kilda. Yes, it's it's funny. Fremantle want a Geelong player. Geelong want a St Kilda player, and St Kilda want a Fremantle player. And I think last year during trade week there was a four-way trade that was suggested between Melbourne, Brisbane, Fremantle, and the Gold Coast, which would have involved Stephen May and Jesse Hogan, and, and I think a top five pick and Lockie Neal. And I remember seeing it. I said, "This one, it, it just makes too much sense. It won't happen because recruiters." and clubs will desperately want to avoid looking like that they lost the trade, despite the fact they'll be bringing in a player they want, and they'll be losing a player who did not want to stay. And I think I might be speaking from a biased point of view because, you know, Jack Stephen at the moment is the lesser of the three players. But Tim Kelly to Frio, Brad Hill to St Kilda, and Jack Stephen in something to Geelong would seem like a reasonable trade where everybody gets something they want and everybody has to give up something they're not going to be able to keep. Remembering that Tim Kelly is the only one of those three players who's not under contract. Jack Stephen and Brad Hill are both under contract for next season. So Geelong are not in a great dealing position. And if Tim Kelly, Tim Kelly will 
get to Fremantle or West Coast through a draft. Other clubs won't want to go through this situation in one or two years' time at best-case scenario. So Geelong, I think, I think in all seriousness, Geelong are going to have to take the best offer. Yes, 100% agree. And if anything, the only thing I don't want to see happen is um, for Tim Kelly to be too strong in his uh, need to get to West Coast. I think it's fine to nominate West Coast, but really he's nominating Perth. And he can't sulk about being traded to Fremantle. I don't like seeing that stuff. But ultimately, I just want to see Geelong get stiffed. Um, <laughs> and his, uh, his sour puss face. I don't know, it's bringing me a lot of enjoyment. And there's an argument, I know it's been out there in the, in the media, but there's an argument that he, you know, he was you know, fairly responsible for Geelong finishing top of the ladder and, and, and once again failing at uh, the semis or the prelims. Well, let's get into the, let's get into the prelims, and obviously the first yeah. one was Richmond Geelong. There was a lot of discussion in the in the qualifying final about uh, Geelong losing the game at the at the selection table, or, or with the late change and taking Reece Stanley out. Tom Lynch kicks five goals, and Mark Blixarves wasn't in the backline again against Richmond. It just seemed like again he was trying to be he was trying to be a bit too clever, and it didn't work. Couldn't agree more. Just too clever by half. The, the media outrage at, at Blitzar's playing in the ruck against Brody Grundy on qualifying final night, uh, it seems like Chris Scott went, I'll show you, I'll play him on the wing. There were so many, so many little defensive errors by that Geelong footy side on qualifying final night. They needed that steady head, and he's a great footballer. He, he's going to have an influence wherever he goes. He wasn't particularly good on the wing. But yeah, when Tom Lynch is, is staring you in the face as the the person who's going to take this final away from you. And and they've got him up on the wing. It just it did not make any sense to me. I agree. Other than that, I thought it was a, a pretty stock standard good final. I thought that both teams had their patches through the first three quarters and then the better team just sort of put the foot down and, and ran away and the other team couldn't go with them. I, a criti- I've heard a criticism of Geelong that uh, part of their problem is they, their bottom six isn't very good. And I think for the Collingwood game, uh, that was fair comment. I sort of disagree with the preliminary final. I thought, I thought there was a number of their lesser players who I thought was pretty, who played pretty well. I thought Atkins was good. I thought Parfit was better. I thought Narkel had slightly more influence. There's another Guthrie? sort of Guthrie. Well, I mean, he didn't play in the first game and he was best on ground against West Coast and he was again good. And number 38, whose name just escapes me now. Who uh, I thought is was that Henry? Henry, yes. I thought he was poor against Collingwood. I thought he was pretty good uh, against Richmond. I don't know how much of the time, game he got caught spent playing on Lynch, but I thought he was all right when the ball hit the ground. Well, Jasney spent most of the night with Lynch. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, look, it's a very interesting uh, debate. I think Geelong's list is really strong. Um, I'm kind of fascinated with them as a footy club and all the debate surrounding... You know, not just the selection table, but uh, whether they should play finals at, at Geelong and all that kind of stuff. And we've talked about that ad nauseum. I don't know. Maybe I'm best not to comment and, and switch the subject slightly to, uh, you know, we, we spoke about the pre-finals by having an impact on the semi-finals. Well, I think teams uh, that won their qualifying final are now 4-4 four and four as well in prelims. So uh, it's an interesting one. doesn't really apply to Geelong, but... There's a, there's a lot of resting in there, and it does apply to Richmond because, as you said, the better team won in the end and played a terrific last quarter. But 
you could argue they're a lot better than Geelong. So um, it, it's interesting that they went into halftime with a 21-point deficit. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a little bit... Uh, it was, that was a huge decision right before halftime to... First of all, I'm, I'm not sure what the free kick was uh, to Dangerfield. Um, he then got 50 metres for the ball, not being thrown back to him. And Julie kicked the goal, and I don't know if he had another disposal for the rest of the night. Um, you're not saying you're not saying that he that he flopped there, are you? I'm saying it was. Let me put it this way, and I, I don't mean to trigger you, Cameron, but it was less of a push of a back than the one on Grundy in the third quarter the next day. Well, I am triggered, and, and if, <laughs> by less, if by less you mean a whole lot less. If now, if you're if you're that umpire and you see Jeremy Finlayson go go into a ruck contest with Brody Grundy, wouldn't you be thinking, "Geez, I better look out for some contact here." Because Brody Grundy, if we're just talking about pure strength, um, eats Jeremy Finlayson's like three or four Jeremy Finlayson's every morning for breakfast. Oh, and I think Finlayson, I think, Finlayson, I think as Ruckman and pushed him fair and square in the back. I thought I think Finlayson uh, gives as good as he gets. He's obviously not, you know, literally in the same weight division as Brody Grundy. The replay showed that Andrew Stevens, who think, he wasn't in a good position. Uh, in an unrelated story, I'm also happy Andrew Stevens isn't umpiring on the in the grand final. Um, okay. But why do we have three umpires? I understand an umpire can be unsighted. I've umpired at a very low level and have been unsighted. That's why we have three umpires. Why didn't two of the umpires who would have clearly seen the back of Grundy seen Finlayson go straight into him and push him in the back. I don't understand how that, how all of them missed that free kick when they, that when I know they're quite within their rights to call an umpire, call a free kick like that as the non-controlling umpire. Yeah. Yeah. It, look, I don't want to spend too much time on it because, you know, Collingwood uh, had their moments with the umpires as well. Um, and it, it, it doesn't impact the results, but I, I just think it's, it's on the, um, it's on the controlling umpire to actually uh, determine uh, when Jeremy Finlayson puts his hand up for a ruck contest against Brody Grundy, I'd be looking out for something. He certainly looked out for something when Mummy was in the ruck contest with Brody Grundy because no one can really go with him, let alone a, a third-string key forward. Fair enough. One thing in common with the two preliminary finals, though, uh, was the team with the week off, coming off the week off, finishing the better. Collingwood had every right after... Cameron kicked the first goal of the last quarter to turn their toes up, I thought. And it was just an incredible performance just to get back into that game with the conditions and the circumstances of the game. I, the only question I have to ask you as a Collingwood supporter is how proud of you are of them. Uh, I, I love the group. And I, it's an interesting one because I think a lot of, neutral supporters, as much as they have always hated Collingwood, find it difficult to hate this group. There's a lot of love out there for Nathan Buckley in the community. There's a lot of love for Adam Trelaw out there in the community. Everyone wants a Brody Grundy of their own. Little kids who aren't supposed to be barracking for uh, Collingwood are asking for a Jordan Degoe haircut and stuff like that. So somehow we've... Don't, been... kids. Don't. Finish the haircut. <laughs> Shave it all off. You don't have to just shave off the sideburns. Mr. Burns is still going to say you're fired. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I am. I'm immensely proud of them. However, I think um, Buck's had it right. It's a, it's a little bit of a waste. 
having said that, I was I was petrified of this preliminary final when when the entire media spent the whole week following GWS's terrific semi-final against Brisbane, saying that they couldn't win. And the odds were stacked against them, no question. You take uh, Toby Green and uh, Lockie Whitfield out of that side and in extraordinary circumstances. And, you know, most sides couldn't cope with that. But what you're left with is Tim Taranto, Jacob Hopper and Josh Kelly on ball, all of whom are top five draft picks. There's just, I mean, their depth has been questioned, this footy club, but these are, these are gun footballers. Those two, Hopper and, and Taranto, seem born to play finals footy and are tough as nails. And Tim, I don't know. Tim, the narr- the- Tim Taranto is leading the Gary Ayres uh, Award for the AFL Coaches Association Best Player of the Finals. And he's playing this week. So if he polls votes, he probably won't be caught by anyone. So that's They're very pretty tough. insane. They're a very tough footy club. And then the, the last thing that happened, as I'm listening to more and more media types, you know, writing GWS off and saying it would be the greatest coaching performance in the history of the game and the, the biggest preliminary final upset of all time, likely bigger than 99. I'm like, gosh, it might be the biggest one in one year. <laughs> yeah, Collingwood beat Collingwood beat Richmond last year in the preliminary final, uh, in large part thanks to a guy who probably had never heard of the game five years ago. Correct. It was. Yeah. It, I, you know. Anyway, enough enough said. I, I am. Yeah. I'm a little bit salty about about that because as soon as as soon as a team can't win, they often win, and I do think we let one slip. But I think GWS just played it perfectly. Their mentality of of oh, we can't win today. Is that right, boys? And they just all got around each other. A little bit of rain just brought them a little bit closer because that meant the ball was in tight all afternoon and it was very difficult to wrench it free right up until the final siren. But I thought they were smoother in transition from the get-go. I thought they were very tough. I thought Collingwood were pretty fumbly. And then, as you say, I think there's, there's an argument for the fact that the, um, we had fresher legs there in that 15 minutes and we found something, and I'm proud of them. But yeah, it was um, it was a frustrating afternoon. Yeah, Bill Simmons, the pod father, talks about this during the NFL season quite a bit about uh, teams that no one believes in, and they get this sort of mentality that's no one believes in us outside of this locker room. And I feel like GWS have got that going. They've got the nobody believes in us thing going pretty well at the moment. It, I mean, there are there are aspects that remind one of the Bulldogs three years ago in this. Everyone remembers how the Bulldogs played in the finals in 2016. No one really remembers that they sort of limped into the finals. Uh, the last game of the season, they went to Perth and got uh, pretty well taken care of by a Fremantle team that had nothing to play for. So two weeks later, they were back in Perth against the Eagles and, and touched them up and, the, and they were off. So I just feel like it's a reflection in part of how the team's were built, not the concessions and not the things they got to start, and you know the the building blocks, the the you you pick here and you pick there, but who they brought into the club, and I just feel like this is a, the 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 core GWS players, and they've continued on down this road that they wanted to bring in guys who are sort of Mark Williams footballers, where it's really about it's all about the contest, and they want to win the contest, and that makes. That they've sort of instead of just 
seemed like Gold Coast were very silky and that they they wanted to sort of run along the ground and they would, you know, either destroy you. And when they had that good patch in 2014 when they would look like they were going to make the finals, you know, they, they would just, you know, blow you off the deck. But um, this GWS team likes being, likes doing it down and dirty and they're a stoppage team and Richmond aren't. So it does add a point of difference uh, for Saturday. Yep, I 100% agree. And it's hats off to them. They've been, they've been brilliant. In the podcast that will never go to where, I remember saying to you that I just felt the winds had shifted slightly in the lead up to that weekend where you couldn't have GWS against uh, the Bulldogs uh, after round 23. The Bulldogs were white hot and where, where the week off prior to the finals um, made the Bulldogs in 2016, I think it cooked the dogs of 2019. And in, in the space of three weeks or two weeks of football, GWS produced a 120-point turnaround at the same venue. It was absolutely extraordinary coaching performance. And also, they, they just got the right boys fit at the right time. And as you say, created that mentality of we're not, you know, no one believes in us, but we can do it. And, you know, write that team off at your peril because, you know, as we say, there's just however they play football and they've been a good finals team in their short existence. Yes. There's just, there's so much talent out there too. So they've won they, finals. They've made finals four years. They've won a final in each of the four years. They've made three prelims. They're now in a grand final. This is a team that's built for September. And uh, why should we think that a grand final against the best team in the last 36 months will be any different? I'm not saying Richmond are going to lose, but everything about their previous performance says that GWS are going to play well on Saturday. I think Richmond need to uh, get themselves a really nice lead because I think if it's tight going into the last quarter, they've shown GWS have shown all the mongrel required, and and it's it's Richmond's to lose. So if it's tight at the end, I, I'm 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 backing the boys in orange. Fair enough. Now. As opposed to all the other things that were said and were, of, of course, all, all true in the now officially titled the podcast that will never go to air, <laughs> we discussed our biggest disappointment of 2019. I just wanted to cover that again. Uh, you were pretty scathing of a team that uh, had a very disappointing season and very few people talked about, and that was the Melbourne Footy Club. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, they, they were just dreadful. You know, built up as the team on the rise, and it was hard. It was hard to argue with that, really. They'd, uh, I know you you have some uh, opinions about the gaps in their list, but if those gaps exist, they managed to cover them pretty well last year. They are. It's very difficult to explain. They obviously um, sent a lot of players away for uh, surgeries in the off season, which may have hobbled their preseason a little bit. But you you, you can't explain it this away there, there was a, a lack of toughness across the board that I didn't think was typical of Melbourne it wasn't typical of Melbourne last year they were a tough side you know they had you know one of the two best ruckmen in the competition uh, which was such an advantage for them and then guys that could win it in close you know Tom McDonald played out of his skin last year and clearly couldn't rediscover that this year but you know to go from a prelim final to um, 17th and then not to even get uh, or likely not even get uh, the number two draft pick off the back of that. Yeah, it was a very it was a very typically Melbourne season, and I really thought they'd put the old Melbourne to bed. 
And I read today that uh, someone like, I think, Billy Stretch, who has been in at the team throughout his Melbourne career, is on the block and exploring his options. It continues to amaze me. I mean, they, they, they desperately need outside run. And yet it's, it seems to be the non-inside types who, who tend to be pushing, pushed out. Maybe they're just not good enough, but, uh, you know, guys who can't seem to get regular game time, but uh, and ma- maybe would get more of a regular game if they were structured up better. So Dean Kent's at St Kilda. He's that type. You know, not a world beater, but a, a good footballer who, who's capable of very good football. Stretch the same. It just makes me scratch my head in terms of a list management strategy. And they're, you know, they're interested in Adam Tomlinson. I don't mind them being interested in Jamie Elliott, but I'd probably, I mean, Jamie Elliott is a marking forward though. He's, he's, you have to play him as a sort of pseudo focal point. You would have watched a bit of him. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think he's going to, I don't think he's going to give their midfield outside run. Mm. Um, if, but if he's not a small forward. forward crumbing forward he's a he's a marking forward who's not tall yeah that's right that's yeah. right and is it Alex Keith is also that they might also be in the market for him just like you're right in saying that I mean I don't know they obviously don't uh, feel about their list I think they must feel like if they can organize their transition if they can learn to move the football that the football moves faster than legs do so they I, they must be banking on you know Guys like Oliver and Petraka and these guys winning enough football, uh, Jack Viney and uh, and these types, and then just making sure they hit their targets moving forward because they that was one thing they just couldn't do this year. They couldn't hit a target to save themselves going inside forward 50. They were hacking it in there. And, and so Tom McDonald was on a hiding to nothing, even trying to have a season like last year. They, they must be banking on transition and... Uh, Goodwin want to hope he gets it right because he got a free pass, in my opinion, this year, unbelievably. But I think it can only be because there's some time to run on his contract that people don't feel he should be under pressure. But he was handed something pretty nice by Paul Ruse, and he's in danger of blowing it. I agree, and and there should I mean there'll be pressure on him because I mean Ross Lyon will be waiting there. Um, the guy yeah. you get in when you've got an underperforming group. He's the guy. He, he's the let's squeeze every ounce out of a group. The other uh, thing about Coates, Melbourne, it was, it was last year before the season, wasn't it, when they just, they declined a preseason camp of sorts. Mm. Um, and at the time, you know, a few eyebrows were raised in the, you know, recently retired footballer community, uh, you know, who sometimes I think uh, don't quite understand that Gen Y types are a little bit different. But having said that, uh, as soon as you you drop your prelim final, you know, overperforming season and return to this kind of mediocrity, there's an argument to say they should have gone on that camp, and that an, a coach like Ross Lyon, who would bring in, you know, the required toughness and get rid of players who who weren't really up for a camp like that or weren't really up for training like that, yeah, he'd, he'd be a good fit. Um, so they they'd want to start winning games again. Yeah, I also think. I mean, I also think one of their main problems is their list is not very well balanced. They seem to be targeting a back six entirely made up of intercepting defenders, which is all wonderful if they mark everything, but they have a problem with marking small forwards, as in not small forwards who mark, but you know, manning up on small forwards. They they get away from them. They kick goals. They don't really have a good shutdown small defender. They need 
you know, to find whoever the next Nick Smith is and try and get them in the team rather yeah, than thinking, let's put Tomlinson next to next to Jake Lever, next to Stephen May, next to Kyle Dajny, uh, next to, you know, someone else. And then probably their best pure uh, shutdown tall defender and and because of his speed, he's a bit like a poor man's Dustin Fletcher in that regard. Um, he's very good at shutting down small small forwards as well. Is Sam Frost, and they're going to let him walk. So yeah, there's not one bit of their list management that I'm that I can wrap my head around and think at the moment that makes sense. And I just I I don't at the moment. If you got ten to one on Goodwood not seeing out the season next season, I would take it. I think that'd be a good investment. Yeah, geez, it's not a bad bet. I, maybe they weren't ready for Neville Jenner to fall off the cliff as as. Uh as quickly as he did. Uh, maybe he hasn't. Maybe they're, they're thinking he can back up. Yeah, you're right. That is, that is puzzling. On the, other, on the other flip side of the coin, what was your best or biggest pleasant surprise for season 2019 from across the competition? Who was the something that you weren't expecting that, you know, put a smile on your face? Again, is there, just, is there an obvious answer? Um, we're, we're speaking uh, the day after the... the the coaches awards and it was it was just lovely to say to see uh chris fagan's smiling face you know up on the podium there and and brisbane have just i don't know become the people's club this year they 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 it it's been really great to watch them play nice footy again to see some crowds return to the gabba to see them kicking 100 plus you know and hopefully they they get the learnings out of you know a season with a couple of finals in it that um that Melbourne didn't, uh, I, you know, maybe, maybe they're setting themselves up beautifully for a sustained run. I, I can see a lot of Geelong and St Kilda in 2004 in Brisbane of this year. I just hope we don't next year have the overreaction to the overreaction. Hodge is gone. He was a huge calming influence on the team. They could finish sixth or seventh next season and it would actually be a pretty good performance. They're still young. I think we just have to temper our expectations a little. They're a top four team this year. They've got out in straight sets. They've lost both games at home, but two of the two grand finalists who are both great teams. But I think in terms of actually building towards a premiership run, and and also, you know, the Brisbane teams of the 2000, the, the premiership teams, they made a prelim in 96, then the merger happened, they took a step back, then they made another prelim in 99, took a step back in 2000, which was an asterisk season in many regards, and then 2001 put everything together. So sometimes, I mean, sometimes it takes a little while, but I will say this about Brisbane, the good teams always get there early. They always get there earlier than you, can, than you think. Yeah, it's true. And it's Hawthorne true. did it in 07, 08. They won a flag early. I think Collingwood in 2010, considering who they had in the team in the second half of the season, was probably a little early. I mean, Essendon 93, Bulldogs in 2016. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think the good teams. Yeah, I mean, that was the question mark I had over Richmond. Um, even you know, before you know, they when I, I thought they should have been playing finals in 2012, and they did, and they didn't get it, do it. And I just thought from that, you know, from that point on, I was like, okay, I'm I'm going to temper my any enthusiasm because they. The good, the, the the really special teams get there a year early, but they put things together. I mean, they got they they did their own journey. So, yeah, I, I, they're a, they're an easy team to like Brisbane. I, I, I do worry that winning flag. Yeah, I do worry 
I thought they were always an easy team to like when they were winning. I know they beat your your team in two of those finals, but Michael Voss would have just about been my favorite footballer who wasn't a St. Kilda jumper at that time. So, um, Started to like because they had that, that 10% thing at the time. I mean, they, they, they are the best team I've ever seen. But, you know, I, I wouldn't have minded just taking that 10% off them and seeing who that meant they lost. Could have been worse. They were seven kilometres of a zone away from being able to draft Nick Rewalt. So, <laughs> and and of course, uh, Collingwood's greatest ever footballer uh, wandered Rupert out of the club as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, it was an interesting discussion uh, with uh, just to pump another podcast up. The sacked podcast when they talked to Robert Walls. He had an interesting uh, bit of information about uh, Buckley. Right at Brisbane for that year. And so I can recommend that edition of that podcast. Walls was good. And I, I think Buckley did absolutely everything he was asked for at Brisbane. And, but you know, the, the understanding was he was coming to Brisbane for a year and he was always going to move on. So anyway, yeah, I think that's right. The other, the, uh, the other thing before we move on from Brisbane, I really enjoyed the first question posited to him on AFL 360 which was, uh, was it awkward sort of standing up and receiving that award and eyeballing Alistair Clarkson, who's never won it? <laughs> and uh, if there's a greater irony in the AFL, I'll go he, because I'm pretty sure I saw a stat from Josh Kay the other day that said, I mean, this, this weekend is a, a Clarko disciple versus a Clarko disciple. And the last eight flags or thereabouts have either been won by Clarkson or a Clarkson disciple. Yeah, I think the last premiership that wasn't won by a Clarkson disciple was won by uh, his best mate. So um, I think <laughs> it, it it's an interesting tree. It'd be it'd be it'd be an interesting and the ultimate footy nerd thing to do to do the, all the coach family trees. And I think just about everyone will end up with either Alan Jeans or John Kennedy, but and Ron Barassi. So everyone will yeah. go back to the, those three. Yeah. Bill Belichick's won like three, I think only three Coach of the Year awards in America in the NFL, and he's won six Super Bowls and won, I think he's had 19 straight double-digit win seasons. So, Mental. It is is, is tend to be guy in charge of most improved team. I'm not, I don't want to be besmirch or begrudge is the word I was looking for. Begrudge uh, Chris Fagan anything. I think he's a deserved winner, but I do tend to think that the, uh, Coach of the Year award tends to go to the team, the guy in charge of the team that did the most improving that season. I think, you know, I can't remember who won it last year, but just at a guess, Buckley it was probably Buckley won it last year. It would have been Buckley or Goodwin, is what I would have yeah. suggested. Um, it would have been Hardwick the year before that. Luke Beveridge in 2016, despite the, oh, he might have won it two years in a row. But um, Well, the crazy thing is with, with the years where Clarkson should have been immoral, they were voting on it prior to the finals. Which yeah, is, that's just stupid. Yeah, it is so stupid. And 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 if you if you now include the finals, I mean, Fagan is still by far and away the performance to take that team from right near the bottom, right up near the top, is fantastic. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Clarkson should have won several, and he should have won them. He should have won them when it was voted on in the finals. Absolutely. So the grand final Saturday, two thirty, maybe the last day grand final. Uh, that we have, uh, for better or worse. 
Richmond and GWS, they've played in a prelim two years ago, which was famous for uh, 98,000 Richmond supporters in the house and Trent Cotchin doing things to Dylan Shield that are probably not legal in Tasmania and getting away with them. What do you think the game's going to be won and lost? And and uh, where is the interest going to be in this game other than the obvious? Oh, that's a, that's a huge question. You're you're right in that there's an element of um, uh, David King's famous oil and water in this one, that the Giants are going to try and keep the ball inside uh, and, and, and contested. And Richmond are almost going to try and, well, as they often do, uh, have their elite ball winners at half back and then just run in waves. Uh, they, they, they're really contrasting styles. And, and Richmond have put up a pretty irresistible, uh, is it 12 wins on the bounce, and look every bit like a premiership team. But GWS weren't going to win one final this year. Uh, they were, yeah. were going to be the also-ran. There's a, there's a toughness to this group uh, that is extraordinary, which we've covered off in our discussion of the prelim. So they're going to get some handy in. I know Coniglio is not going to play, but it was probably a 50-50 at best, I would say. Uh, a, even if he was totally football. even if he was totally fit, the fact he hadn't played since like early July and straight yeah. into a grand final was always going to be hugely risky. And I mean, there were there would have been obvious risks. I don't, I'm I'm just assuming Delidio's not playing. There's obvious risks about a guy who can't seem to get through a half a footy without hurting his calf uh, coming to the game. So I think Green comes in and Whitfield comes in, and that's probably it. And uh, pretty handy in. But Ian, I mean, Hill, yeah. Bobby Hill's the unlucky last in, first out, and probably Lockie Keefe. You know, considering how. Richmond don't really play tall. He did a good job last week, Lockie Keith. But um, yeah, they're, they're the obvious sort of bottom rung players. I mean, from there, you probably move on to Tomlinson. And I think he's a good player. So having his quality out there is, is you know, I think, yeah, if it comes down to Keith and Tomlinson, it's Keith who's going to make way. Yeah, I think Tomlinson's more versatile. He could probably do 95% of the tall stuff that uh, Keith can do, but uh, can also get out on a wing and get his own ball and be a little bit more mobile. A and that's little bit of intrigue around Phil Davis as well, who couldn't who uh, couldn't take a trick on, on prelim final day, popping a finger out in the warm-up, and then it looked like he might have nicked a calf or something similar and then bunging a shoulder when he came back on in the forward line. Yeah, so, there's, I mean, he's going to play. He sort of typifies their spirit and their toughness um, as much as their other co-captain who won't be out there. There's a bit, I don't know, there's a bit of moment, there's a lot of momentum there. And a guy like Coniglio, just having, just having his season on the edge like that, training with the group, clearly pushing himself right to the edge to try and get himself right, sort of typifies where this club's at at the minute. Mm. Um, if it's close, I, I'm predicting, it's very, very difficult to predict. The, the irresistible uh, footy that Tigers are playing looks to be the um, uh, that's the sort of the style of football uh, that looks like the best style of football in the comp. Um, they've done it in the wet. They've done it in the dry. It's it's really good to watch. It's beautiful and attacking. Scoring is their focus. If they can get out to three or four goals early on, then I think you know 
that they would be feeling really confident about a result similar to the ones they've been chalking up. Five, six, seven goals. But if it's tight going into the last quarter, there'll just be some nerves because they let last year slip and the Giants won't be letting anything slip. So having said all that, I'm going to predict the Tigers win by about five goals. And I think a guy who who got no credit at all on Brownlow night, um, Shane Edwards, uh, he looks like a Norm Smith uh, medalist to me. And I think he might be the guy GWS are going to lock down on a couple of players, which might make it difficult for Dustin Martin, just like it was in round three or whenever it was they played. You know, a, a, a guy like... Reed might lock down on somebody else. They, you know, they did a lot of defensive jobs on Collingwood, keeping the ball in really tight and being very, very physical about it all. But you can't tag everybody. And um, Shane Edwards is a high-quality player who played an excellent grand final in 2017, and I think he might get his just desserts. Fair enough. I have come up with almost the identical result, but sort of arriving at it a different way. I can see this sort of being reminiscent of a, you know, like 2004 grand final, uh, 2001, where the teams sort of trade punches, a bit like the Richmond Geelong prelim. The teams uh, trade punches for two and a half quarters and then Richmond's freshness um, will just come to the fore. And I think we can both agree. I mean, the weather forecast is 16 degrees and dry for Saturday, but I think we can both agree if it rains, then Richmond are almost Monty's. Um, they might be the best wet weather football team we've seen since we actually had wet weather football. And by that, I mean mud. I can see them pulling away and winning by about five goals. And my pick for the Norm Smith is, I think, I think Leon Cameron won't overthink it. I think he'll send DeBoer to Martin, which means Martin will go forward, which will leave Dion Prestia to dominate and win the Norm Smith. And his second half of the season has just been incredible. Has hasn't it? He's yeah. one that he's one that when he when he came to Richmond, I knew that Gold Coast rated Prestia highly. But he's very small in stature. He just goes about his business, and he has during his whole time at Tigerland. It was questionable whether they threw too much at him to get him down. Uh, I think they, they're completely justified. Did he win a flag in his first year at Richmond? Yes, he did. Yeah, so he's paid them back in spades, and you're right. And now he's he's just about, I mean, he's their second best player. And, yeah, and too- by, by the stats, champion data have him the best player in the competition in the last 12 weeks. Uh, Jonathan Brown uh, raises eyebrows at that because the best player is running around in Richmond colours as well. But yeah, he's he's been excellent. Yeah. I mean, if GWS win, I mean, I just, I just think that it'll just be probably a quarter too long for GWS, but I think it'll be a cracking game for the most part. If GWS are to get up, there's one name that keeps popping in my head from a Norm Smith medal point of view for GWS, and I sort of don't want it to happen, but it's Toby Green. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the guy, is, the guy is polarizing because it's hard not to love the way that he lit- just when he plays the ball, he's, mm. he's a breathtaking footballer. Everyone would want him on their team. You and I, I think, are fairly aligned as far as uh, when he doesn't have the football and some of the stuff that is on his rap sheet and, and most recently on his rap sheet. But yeah, if, if like, because you're talking about them running out of steam and the game going a quarter too long. 
that's not going to happen to Toby Green and that's not no. going to happen to Lockie Whitfield. And so if those two players, you know, find an extra gear in quarter four, um, when the game is on the line and if the ball has been in close all day, they're the guys who could just suddenly make something happen. Yeah, Zach I don't Williams know about... Who, who similarly... I, I don't think I've ever seen Zach Williams play a bad game. And, yeah, and I don't... He's, He's not your typical GWS player, and that he's he's off the rookie list, isn't he? I think so. He was he was superb on Saturday and the two games before that. I don't know about Whitfield. He he did he have appendicitis and lost like three kilos. So I think I think he is one of the players who might run out of steam. But I totally agree with you. Toby Green has no excuses. He should be well rested. So there we go. I think we're in for a good one. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know what more there is to say, but uh, we'll get together sometime after probably trade week and have a chat about um, some instant reacts about uh, who wins what trade and you know what Melbourne are doing and provide some sort of explanation. So um, until then, thanks very much, Cam, for joining us. Good on you, legend. No worries. And uh, we'll see you next all. We'll... Be speaking to you next time on the podcast. It should go without saying. Until then, we'll see you later.